Good morning again. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. And we kind of begin in earnest today our series on God's providence that will encompass the next four or so months. Uh, I've been excited about this for a long time, and so I'm glad we finally launched into it. Lord willing, after that, we'll be looking at the Gospel of John for probably a long time. So uh, a little bit of a break, but uh, from verse by verse, uh, which is our bread and butter here, but uh, Gospel of John, Lord willing, after that. Genesis 22, I'll read verses 1 to 14. Now let us hear now the word of the Lord as inspired by His Spirit. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. If you miss that, take him and kill him. That's what he's saying. That's what God's saying to Abraham. So Abraham arose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with a donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, him, Abraham built his, the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. <laughs> For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went out and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is God's inspired, authoritative, inerrant word. May he bind it to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, this morning I pray as I do so many Lord's Days, simply this. That the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And that you would build in us a rock-ribbed, immovable confidence in the absolute sovereignty of God, our provider. 
that we would know you, we would delight in you, and know that you are there. Lord, that you would comfort and strengthen us today and work in our hearts to build our faith so we might handle the pressures of everyday life in a way that honors and glorifies you. And others may take note and say, why is it that you have this great hope in your heart and that, God, we're always ready to give that account to a lost and dying and dark world. We might live every moment, not for our own glory, for your glory, but Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. One of the things I love and hate about the great game of baseball is the pressure. One of the reasons I wanted my boys to play baseball, and others, true of other sports too, we're talking about baseball here because, you know, I'm the one preaching the sermon, <laughs> golf and other things. But I love it because it's so full of pressure. Two outs, ninth inning, game tied, bases loaded, and you're at the plate. Friend, that's pressure. Or two men out, three men on, game tied, three balls and two strikes, and you're on the mound, and you've got to throw a strike. Now that's pressure. I love that about all sports. I love it, and I hate it because as an athlete, I loved it, but then I got in the moment, and I hated it. I want to go run and hide sometimes, especially if I struck out. And in baseball, the beauty of baseball is everyone sees it when you don't succeed. And the best hitters, of course, succeed only three times in seven anyway, Ted Williams that about sports? Pressure. Why? Because life is full of pressure. You have to pay the mortgage every month. You have to please your boss. You have to please your spouse. You have to pay the rent. You got to buy groceries. You have to handle pressure. And so the Christian faith and the providence and sovereignty of God, I believe, more than any other Teaching of the Bible helps me and you to handle pressure of everyday life. Back in the 80s, and you know I use a culturally anachronistic uh, illustrations all the time, but I grew up in the 80s, and I still think it's the best music ever. But Billy Joel, one of my favorite singers, wrote a song called Pressure, and some of you know this song. And this is not a Christian song, I'm going to warn you, okay? Because here's what he says, and I think this is how the world thinks of pressure. Those who are outside of Christ, he says, don't ask for help. Don't ask for help. You're all alone. Pressure. In other words, there is no God. Don't pray for help. You're on your own pressure. You'll have to answer to your own pressure. I'm sure you'll have some cosmic rationale. You'll have some Bible or some God. That's what he's saying. You'll have some cosmic rationale. But here you are in the ninth baseball. Two men out and three men on. Nowhere to look but inside we all respond to pressure. And for the non-Christian, the unbeliever, that's absolutely true. There's nowhere to look. It's just you and you alone. Bottom of the ninth, two men out and three men out, it's up to you. But if you're in Christ and you're a believer and you understand God's providence, you know you're not all alone. You know that you have one who will give you the grace and the strength to handle pressure. Because you don't have to trust in yourself, you trust in the one who loved us and sent his son to die in our place for our sins, which is pictured, as we're going to see, in this text this morning. Now, you want to talk about pressure. It's hard to imagine God asking something of someone who will put more pressure on than he did Abraham, telling him, take your son, your only son, whom I gave you, the son of promise, and kill him. You think that's pressure? 
Man, two men out and three men on has got nothing on that, right? Take your son, your only son, God says, and kill him. Now, before we get into the text, let's go back, let's go back a week to my introductory sermon and look at our, our sort of our definition of God's providence. And our catechism, remember the Heidelberg Catechism. Ask, what do you understand by the providence of God? We're going to go back to this. I'd encourage you to memorize this if, you, if you're of the memorizing kind. If you're middle-aged like me and it just bounces off. But try anyway. Here's what God's providence is. His almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, Fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, hello COVID, riches and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. You're under pressure, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. You're in that situation by his fatherly hand, by his doing. It's his will that you're under pressure pressure. Joel Beakey said, providence is God executing his decrees before the foundation of the world. It was decreed that you'd be in this situation, not another. Of course, there's my definition, God's fatherly invisible hand, which is the name of the series, the invisible hand, by which he meticulously governs all people, all things, and all events for the building up of his church and the glory of his name. That's my definition, and that's it. We might say it this way today. You're under pressure. God's got this. If you're in Christ, if you're not outside, if you're outside of Christ, you're not a Christian, then God help you. There is no help. There is no help. You know, this, this Hollywood God, you look up and he, everybody's right with God. Everybody goes to heaven, you know, and he's there to help. And no, you're not his children. He makes a difference. As we're going to see as we walk through this sermon series. Now, let's get into this story. This story is, it, it, it's still, the, uh, this is one of the most compelling stories to me in all of Scripture. And one of the most difficult. This is one of those, we might call them hard sayings of the Bible. And let's set the context. Who is Abraham? Let's, let's go back a little ways into Genesis 12 and 15 and 18. Because Abraham is one of the most important figures in all of the Bible, in all of history. He was, in a sense, the founder of Christianity. Even though it's kind of anachronistic to say that because, you know, Christ had not come yet. He was the first man of faith, the original man of faith. Remember back in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham that he will be a great people. God will give him land and he'll make him a great people. And it's very confusing. And this is one of those uh, ironies in the Bible, one of those, uh, you know, what, what, what we call those redemptive reversals. Abraham, the problem with Abraham is he's 100 years old. His wife is 90. And she has a barren womb. They have no children. And yet, I'm going to make you a great nation. From a human standpoint, this doesn't look very promising, does it? And yet what happens? God gives him a son at 100. How many 100-year-olds do you know are having children? 90-year-olds. You ever heard of this? Maybe the National Enquirer. You know, you'll see that on there. Maybe for Strom Thurmond, he had children at like 75. But that's Strom Thurmond, man. <laughs> right? You know who he is? Ask your parents. Not 100-year-olds just don't have babies, do they? 90-year-olds the barren wounds? But God did it. He has a way of doing that all through the Bible, doesn't he? Look at Mary, virgin birth, right? And there's others. And so he gives them the child of promise at 100, Isaac. And then he says, what here? Well, he puts him to the test, right? 
And here's, here's why Abraham, this is Abraham's struggle again and again, I think, with this question. Here's the question I want to put to us, the most fundamental question I want us to answer here in light of this story today. <clears throat> and it's this, am I willing to believe in God's ability to do what he has promised in Scripture, but God, what God has promised, without my help? You recall, Abraham tried to give God a lot of help, right? He tried, he got his, he got, uh, his wife's maid pregnant, he married her, and they had a ceremony, because she's got a barren room, surely God's going to do it this way. No, not, that's not it. I'm going to do it the way I'm going to do it. So will we trust God? Will Abraham trust God and his ability to do what he promised without our help? And so we see here the test, verses 1 and 2, when God, where God asks Abraham to do what is absolutely unconscionable, the unthinkable. I mean, imagine this. God comes, and this really happened. This is not a fairy tale. This is not Aesop, okay? This is not Grimm's fairy tales. This is not the Lord of the Rings. Sorry, Clay. This is not, you know, C.S. Lewis, as much as we love those stories, and we do, but they picture the gospel. This is history. God comes to him and puts him to the ultimate test. Will you sacrifice your only son? I think this, this should start to sound very familiar to you as you walk through this. His only son. Think about that. Everything in Abraham's life up to now had been preparation for this very moment. I mean, God had called Abraham to leave his closest relatives and in faith to go to a land he didn't even know where he was going. I'm really big for my kids, so let's, let's find the destination and then we'll chart the course. Well, that's not what God said. He said, I'm just going to show you where a land is and you're going to go there. And you know, no matter how much he hated his in-laws, surely still that was really difficult, right? I love these, I don't like these people, but hey, maybe, well, you know, this is going to be hard. Some of you have left home. I, I've left home. I'm not in my home. I love Louisville and I love Kentucky, but man, I love Georgia. That's my home. But I had to leave, right? God called me somewhere else. I can't relate to this exactly, but boy, I, there's times that I wonder, you know, especially, you know, on Saturday. And you guys wearing jerseys. I thought we played football yesterday. I see football jerseys around here, so I thought we played football yesterday. I just have to say that to make you smile, right? I do know the NFL exists. He's called to leave. He's called to go to a land, and he doesn't know. God's real fuzzy with the details here. And so the expected outcome of Abraham's obedience was not even blessing this time, but what? Okay, I want you to go to land, and then I want you to go and take your son. Okay, good so far, and kill him. Uh-oh. I mean, his faith, his feet are in the fire. His faith is in the fire, right? Immediately, go and take your son, your only son, the son of promise, and kill him. We would never want this kind of challenge put before us by God, would we? I mean, this touched his, one of his, his closest relative. I mean, if God said, I'm going to kill you, I mean, I, I, I think I could handle that a whole lot better than God said, I'm going to kill one of your children. You choose. Boy, wouldn't that make him behave for like a long time for now? Boy, you know, we've got to choose one. But think about it. This really happened. Imagine parents taking one of your children and sacrificing them to God with a knife. I mean, this is what God really asked him to do, really and truly. Don't imagine, it's unconscionable. That's why I said that, the unimaginable. It's agonizing. I mean, it's one thing to believe God when we're the only one at risk, but to do it when one of your children's life is on the line, that's another thing altogether. At least it is for me, and I'm sure it is for you, no matter how aggravated we get our family members, right? I mean, it's most difficult of all. And the most 
potentially confusing de- detail, no doubt, for Abraham is the fact that this was the son who was promised to fulfill the covenant through whom the Redeemer would ultimately come. God's going to bless the whole world through this boy, but I want you to take him and kill him. This starts to ring a bell with you somewhere? We're not there yet. I'm getting the punchline before I tell the joke, right? But I mean, really, this should sound familiar. As we think about pictures of the gospel throughout the Bible, it's all about Jesus, isn't it? Take Isaac and cut his throat. Verse 2, that's what he's saying. Now, he's testing him and not tempting him. And this is a very important distinction that we need to make theologically. God often tests us, but he will never tempt us to sin. This is a very different category. James 1.13, James says, Let no one say when he's being tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself, God himself, tempts no one. So he's testing his faith, but not tempting him to sin. Very different things. When he tested Job, he was testing Job, not tempting him to sin. Right? They're very different things. You'll be tempted by your own flesh, James goes on to say, by your own fallenness, your own sinfulness, and God will give you a way of escape. When you're tempted to sin, it's because of the wickedness that is alive in your own heart. That's where temptation comes from. And it's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to have certain, uh, certain proclivities, certain uh, desires or sinful desires, but tempted, being tempted, our Lord Jesus was tempted, but the difference was he was tempted externally, and not internally by sin that dwelt in his heart, because he was the perfect Son of God, Son of Man. He was tempted, and everywhere as we are, yet without sin, yet he was tempted externally. Big, big difference theologically. You understand that? You get that? Does that make sense? So he's being tested here, and God may test you, and you won't know it. Abraham didn't know this. This was behind the curtain, just like Job. And see, we know this, and we kind of know what's going to happen, right? We, it's like we've read the last chapter of the book. Or we've watched, you know, we fast-forwarded and we watched the end to see what happens. Well, he didn't have access to the Bible, the Genesis. And this is one of those stories that makes liberal theologians and liberal scholars reject the Bible. They say, well, my God would never ask one of his children to do that. My God. And you get the my God part. The pronoun is very important. I know we're into pronouns today and talking about that. So when you say my God, well, you're talking about another God, not the God of Scripture. And I say, well, this, this could never be because God would never do this. And yet, our God, as C.S. Lewis put it, as I think Mr. Beaver put it in the line of the witch and the wardrobe, he is not tame. The Bible is not a tame book. You know I hate what I call precious moments Christianity. It's just this, you're okay, I'm okay, we're all kind of squishy and loving to this Jesus, and it's all about love, and of course it is all about love, but love biblically defined, not love defined in the terms of Western sort of sentimental categories. That's another Jesus, well, I don't know him. It's not a tame book, and God we serve is not a tame God, we can't put him in a box, can we? And this proves it right here. I mean, imagine this. A loving God would never do this. Well, says who? That's what the the, the liberals say, the liberal scholars say. But if we're totally honest, and we're totally honest here, this makes us a little bit squeamish too. We can say, well, the liberals, but let's listen a minute. This makes us a little squeamish. Just read and say, God tells him to take his son and kill him. And now this is before the giving of the law, right? You shall not murder has not been written yet. Moses hasn't been given the law, the Ten Commandments. However... This is still murder from a human perspective, it seems, right? A lot of problems here we could come up with. Of course, again, we know the end of the story. God provides a sacrifice. 
God's, this is a big ask from God. I mean, it's hard to swallow, but I believe part of God's intent seems to be to show Abraham that even God's promises can become idols in our hearts. Love God, the giver of good gifts, of all good things, or do you love the gifts more? I think that's part of what's going on here. You say, well, all I have belongs to God. Does it really and truly? And I have to ask myself this, as an American, as a, a Westerner, I mean, we're, we're swimming in wealth compared to the rest of the world, many parts of the rest of the world. I have to ask myself all the time, do I love God because he does good things for me, or do I love him when life is hard as well? Do I trust him? And that's part of what's going on here, I think. Even God's promises can become idols. Because as soon as we say, I must have God plus the good things he has promised to his people, then God's blessings have become, idol, have become idols in my heart. This is why the prosperity gospel gets it so incredibly wrong. If you're a Christian, you're going to be healthy and wealthy and you're just going to look like a middle-class American. That is false doctrine, friends. That is not biblical. I mean, if that were the case, then, man, we'd have people lined up instead of selling snow cones yesterday. We'd have said, listen, you'll come to our church tomorrow. You'll never have health problems anymore. Your, your, your bank account will be overflowing with money. You'll have everything you want in this life. Man, we'd have people lined up out there. We'd be giving out dollar bills. It'd be great, wouldn't it? But it's heresy. We're sending them to hell. Wouldn't we? we can't preach that. That's another gospel. Paul said, not there is another gospel, but that's another gospel. Because God, even God's promises, the good things he gives us, our children, they can become idols. I, I love my children. I can see how that's, that's the case. I care supremely about what happens to them. I can see, I can see it. I think of Job. He was a righteous man. Think of him again. He keeps coming up. We're going to get to him in a few weeks, Lord willing. He was a righteous man who served God with all his heart, but that did not impress Satan. Oh, no. When God asked Satan to consider the righteousness of Job, Satan said, huh, of course Job serves you. You make it worth his while. You give him everything anyone could ever wish for. Of course. But you take it all away, and he will curse you to your face. What the devil says to God, just, just take it away. Just take it away. So God did take everything away. He allowed the devil to take some of these things away, even Job's health, and Job did what? He struck Job's body, he took away all of his children, all of his things, took away his health, and God, or did Job curse God and, and, and die? No. He said what? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He worshiped Job, not, I mean, he worshiped God. Job worshiped God, not in spite of his suffering, but out of the middle of his suffering. Is that how you worship God? When, when life hits the fan, do you worship God in spite of this? Well, hallelujah anyway. No, or say, no, God is good. He is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Do you say that with the psalmist? Do you say that with Job? Do you say that with Abraham? Isn't it for we Westerners? Because, man, we've got it all. We, got, we just have to ask Siri. We've got to answer to everything in the world just about, right? Usually Siri roars to life when I say that. I'm glad it didn't this time. It's happened here before, you know, because I like to talk about Siri. Job suffered profoundly, lost it all. He didn't curse God and die. And the same case could be made by Satan toward Abraham, couldn't it? Well, of course, you promised him land, you promised him people, you promised him all this. Right. Of course, he's going to take his son up there. You, you know, he knows you'll probably do something because you're a good God. 
But at the end of the day, the most fundamental question Abraham had to ask himself was, did he serve God for his blessings or for God himself? Was he willing to obey God even if it seemed that God was not going to honor his promises in this life? Are you willing to serve God even if he doesn't seem to honor his promises in this life? Or do you live as if this life is all there is? The gospel really isn't true. It's one way or the other, isn't it? I mean, what, what about me? If God took our families and all our things from us tomorrow, will we still worship and serve him? Man, in my church, church of Lisa and I went to when we first got married, a lot of bad things. He became a Christian. God struck him with a physical malady. He didn't get better as some of the prosperity prophets promised him. He sent money to all these, these people, these, these hucksters, charlatans. He didn't get better. And he cursed God. And he went away like that. Proving he went out from us because he never was one of us. But still, he went out from us because of bad theology. <laughs> right? What about us? We have better theology. We, we, we better get this right. But it's hard to get this right. And if God does not give us grace and strength to get it right, we won't get it right, will we? How did Abraham respond? Well, he responded with what I would call prompt obedience. Verses 3 to 9. He got up early. And he got up early probably because he couldn't sleep. You imagine I got to go tomorrow and kill one of my children? I don't think I'd sleep. It wasn't like he got up early and thought, I'll have a quiet time, I'll have some coffee, eat a donut or two, you know, I'll flip on the Today Show, and then I'll go, we'll go. I don't think that's what's in view here. I think this is agonizing to him. I mean, he'd, he'd not slept a week all night. He probably was trembling, just waited for the sunrise and thought, oh boy, let's, this is a long night, this is going to be a long day. I'm sure he was scared out of his mind. I would have been. I wouldn't have been, you know, at Starbucks in line thinking, I'll oh, get this, and get the mocha, we'll be on our way, man. No, I don't think that's what's happening here. It would have been with me. It wouldn't have been with you. <clears throat> Certainly. So verse 5, the instructions he gives to his men, to those traveling with him, suggests he may have had faith in the beginning that God would perform a miracle. Verse 5, he says, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. It seems like he's got faith right from the beginning. He says, we're going to go over there. We'll be back. We, plural pronoun, we will be back again. <clears throat> Hebrews eleven nineteen tells us that Abraham knew God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. And so Abraham assures his son in verse 8, God himself will provide for us a burnt offering, my son. He will provide a substitute, a pinch hitter, a, shall I say, a designated hitter. I'm a National League guy. But designated, he, he will provide a, a, a substitute. And that's how God responded. Because for Abraham, there was no turning back. He simply believed God and his faith led to action as it should for all of us. We trust God. We should, we should act. We shouldn't just sit still. This, the Christian faith is not a passive faith. We don't serve a passive God and we aren't to be God's passive people. What we, did, we did what we did yesterday because we're never to be passive. Next weekend, we're going to go out there and take the gospel out because we aren't passive people. We don't sit in God's grace academy and soak until we graduate, right? Because the Church is a hospital for the sick, for sick people. That's what this is, right? We're sick people. We're not grace graduates who, you know, we've got all of our theology, theological I's and, you know, T's and all these things and our bona fides. No, 
We need God's grace every Sunday and every day. We need His grace. We see that in this story. Boy, can you imagine the grace it took to get him up and out and to Mount Moriah to make this sacrifice? I mean, Isaac was bound. He was tied up and wood placed on him from the fire, laid on the altar. And Abraham raised the knife. He was about to plunge it into the heart of his only son. And he hears, stop. And I bet he almost passed out. <laughs> Whoa. You imagine the intensity? You want to talk about pressure? Two men out, three men on, that's nothing, right? This is pressure. <clears throat> but he trusted God. He did it because he trusted God. It led him to radical obedience. Does trusting God, does knowing God is sovereign and good, does it lead you to radical obedience? Or are you just kind of sleepwalking through life saying, yeah, well, I go to church and I do my thing and God is with you every moment, and he demands obedience, and he will be with you. As you see here, the Lord will provide. As a, Abraham looks up, and he saw what God in, had indeed provided a lamb, a, a ram trapped in the thicket. He would offer a sacrifice in the place of his son as Isaac's substitute. Boy, should this begin to sound familiar, Right? Lord will provide. God was, after all, able to fulfill his promises without anyone's help. He didn't need Isaac for a sacrifice, right? And the word here in Hebrew, the Lord will provide, in verses 8 and 15, means to see or to see to it. In other words, God will see to it, right? That's where we get the word providence from. This is where it all begins. The doctrine of God's providence that we defined earlier and we'll keep on unpacking through all these stories. God's providence. The God, God will provide. He will see to it. God is seeing to it your life right now. He's upholding every beat of your heart right now. And if he stops, you will die in this room right now, no matter how young you are or how healthy you are. But God is upholding you every single moment. Do you sense that? Do you know that? Are you confident in that? Or do you just think that I'm really healthy? The Lord will provide. He provided a, a ram for Abraham and he will provide for you. This is where we get our word providence. Remember that. God's providence to see to it. He is seeing to every detail throughout all of history. Before the foundation of the world he wrote the script and now we are by his grace every day playing it out. So what does this mean for us? Well, a few things here as we close in a moment. One, God's providence. That's, that's our issue here. There's lots of things we can say about this in applications, but let's apply it to God's providence in our everyday lives. One, you can trust God no matter the situation. No matter how bleak the outcome looks, you can trust God. You can trust Him. I mean, God promises Abraham and Sarah a son, they're 190 years old respectively, and he gives it to them as part of his plan to make Abraham a great people and to save the world. And the Messiah comes through the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel. Trust God no matter what. And you have to ask yourself, when you get in a pressure-packed situation in life, which is really every day, or when you're undergoing affliction, you have to ask yourself this. Is God sovereign or is he not? And friends, that will comfort you like nothing I've ever encountered in my 
50 plus years of life because he is sovereign. Think about 9-11 yesterday. Think about Todd Beamer, the flight 93, the, the flight that a, a group of, of very brave American citizens took down out in Shanksville, Pennsylvania on that, after, on that morning to prevent them from flying back into the White House or something, in a, a target in Washington. And the famous slogan, let's roll. How was Todd Beamer able to keep his wits about him and talk on the phone in a bathroom and then plan and execute taking down that, plan, that plane that morning and saving lots of lives? He knew about God's sovereignty and God's prominence, and he trusted God. He told the lady on the phone, the operator he was speaking with, he, he told her he, he trusted God, that this is God's plan. That's amazing, isn't it? To be able to keep your wits about you, there's a bomb on the plane, you know they're going to kill you. They're going to crash the plane, you know that. Yet he was able to keep his wits together and put together a group of men and women, and they attacked and took the plane down. God will provide he knew that. He, he trusted God. And now, did God save him miraculously, miraculously if the plane crashed? Did the plane blow up? But was Todd Beamer magically ejected and placed on a hill and without a scratch on him? No. He's in heaven right now. But his reward wouldn't come in this life. It came in the next life. And he trusted God for that. And I love that story. Second point of application. You can trust God no matter what he asks Abraham was confident that even if the Lord took Isaac, God could raise the dead. Hebrews 11, 17 and 19, which we looked at months ago when we preached through, uh, taught through Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, <clears throat> there's the word tested again, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, speaking of Genesis 22, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, you're going to be asked to kill this son through whom the, your offering is going to come. What? He said he considered, the writer of Hebrews says, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. There's no question Abraham thought, I'm going to kill my son. And so he received him back. And kind of a, a resurrection, a picture of the resurrection at the end of time of Jesus Christ and our resurrection at the end of time. You can trust God no matter what he asks. For Jesus, there was no reprieve, right? And yet, he trusted the Father. Thirdly, you can trust in God's providence no matter how bleak the situation appears. Because you can trust God. What, Matthew 7, 7 through 11 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Our Lord says this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And I love what he says next. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, speaking to earthly fathers, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone, a rock? If your son says, I need a sandwich, you wouldn't say, I'm going to give you a rock. Here it is. Eat this, buddy. You wouldn't do that, would you? And your earthly father, that's what he's saying. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? Would your dad say, I'm going to give you a snake? You want a big old bass to put on your wall or to put on your sandwich? I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give you a diamondback rattler. No father would do that. And we're sinful fathers. This is what he's saying. If you then who are evil, speaking of earthly fathers, were fallen, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? 
Friends, that's the kind of father you have. He knows how to give you good things. He will not withhold good things from you. Even if those things are your martyrdom, your death, those, are good. those might be good things. But will you trust him no matter how bleak the situation appears? I mean, it looked like Abraham was going to lose his son. You received him back by kind of a, a quasi-resurrection. Fourthly, you can trust God's word no matter how much pressure it exerts on you. The pressure is for your good. Remember what I've been saying here. My little cliche is life is a game of inches, but God ordains the inches. Life is a game of inches. God is in the inches. <laughs> it is, and he is. Abraham took Isaac and trusted God, and the Lord provided. He always does, even when it doesn't make sense. That's a redemptive reversal I talked about, that irony. The way, of life, way to life, Jesus says, the way of death. That's how he deals with us. And what's, you know, things aren't always what they seem for the Christian because God's working for your good and his glory behind the scenes in 10,000 ways that are invisible to us and we may never know or never see. Fifthly, following Christ might cost you everything, but it's part of God's sovereign plan. And that's my last point of application. John 12, Jesus said this. And again, this is one of those redemptive reversals <clears throat> that's pertinent to this story. John 12, 24 and 25, truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus, our Lord speaking, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life in this life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You get that? If you love your life more than you love Jesus in this world, you're going you're gonna to die twice. You're going to die physically and eternally. If you love Christ more than life itself, you're going to die once. You'll die physically, but you'll live eternally. That's the call of every Christian. That's the call. Abraham understood that, right? That if a, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. How do we... How's the farmer plant? How do we grow food? Well, that seed, does it live? No, it dies, but boy, it bears much fruit, right? That's how God deals with you, and that's what he expects of us as believers. This is biblical Christianity 101. This is nothing novel. This is just what the Bible teaches and something you don't hear in a lot of places because it doesn't draw the crowds. When it come to Christ, die. It's a death sentence to be a Christian. You're not going to have that on a hat, are you? <laughs> You're going to have that on a hat. You're not going to have that on, you know, on a, maybe one of your social justice jerseys. That's not going to be back there, is it? No. Come and die. That is the call of Christ, and that is what Abraham understood, and that's why he could go and trust God. Did he love God or God's blessings more? That's always a question for us as well. Friends, God may call us to give up many things for the sake of Jesus Christ, even things that are dear to us, even our own lives. He may. I don't know what's going to befall you. I say, well, is that going to come to America? I don't know. It might. But I'm not worried about it because I think then we'll know who's in and who's out, won't we? Well, who means it and who doesn't mean it? Who's just playing games with God? We, gotta, we serve a God. I think you know now, and you, you know this already, but we serve a God who does not play around must not play games as his church either. You may lose people who mean more to life than you. You may lose your dreams. 
and parting with your dreams, your dreams, your will for your life. You have a wonderful plan for your life. You may lose that. And parting with it may be sorely bitter. We may be indeed called to lay down our lives to the cause of Jesus Christ. Is that coming to this country? Am I saying that? Maybe. I don't know. We, it very well might. We're losing religious liberty all the time in this country. It's going to have an effect on the church, and it's going to be actually good for us, I think. It's far too easy to be a Christian in name only in this country. It costs nothing, does it? It may be costly. But we know, as Abraham did, that our God is able to raise the dead, and he has done it in Christ. And that our inheritance is not on earth, but with Christ in heaven, where nobody and nothing can touch it. Nothing can snatch us out of his hand. Nothing can take that treasure you're laying up in heaven from you because he is guarding it and keeping it in his good providence. The writer of Hebrews tells us that we have a greater covenant secured by a greater surety, built upon greater promises, promises of the one who is, according to Paul, the true seed of Abraham. We have something greater than Abraham. Abraham was great. We got something greater. John 8, 56, Jesus said, upbraiding the Pharisees who, who had just kind of a head knowledge of God, but were very orthodox in their theology or so they claimed, Said your father Abraham had rejoiced that he would see my day. He looked, he saw it, and was glad. In other words, he looked forward, and I think he's speaking, has maybe this story in Genesis 22 in mind. He looked forward to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Have you seen Christ? Do you know him as your Lord and your Savior? Do you trust in him and rest in him no matter what's going on in your life? Or are you just playing games with God? Are you just rejecting him completely? I don't know. But think about this story. Think about the cross. We always land at the cross. As Isaac bore the wood for his own sacrifice, Jesus carried the cross where? Up the steep path that led to Golgotha, the place of the skull. Think about it. He allowed himself to be bound to the cross just like Isaac allowed himself to be bound to the altar and the wood laid on him. He looked up to the heavens and saw the knife in the Father's hand poised above him. Knowing that for him there would be no 11th hour reprieve. Christ was the substitute. He was the lamb God has provided. And God killed him for your sake. The death you deserve to die for your sins, he died. And God brought him out of the ground, raised him up on the third day. He was the lamb, the substitute the knife descended in the cup of God's wrath that you and I both deserve to bear was drained to its very dregs and the promise of blessing for Abraham and for a people and a land at last in the cross of Jesus Christ at Calvary became a reality. It came to fruition. I'm looking at it right here in the people of God, in the church. We're looking at the promise fulfilled. Just as Abraham's willingness to take obedience to the ragged edge demonstrated his unbounded love for God. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, so also God's willingness to take his son, his son's obedience all the way to the agonies of Calvary demonstrated the depth of his love for you and for me. How much did he love us? He loved us that much. To not spare his son but give him up for us all. And the promise, Romans 8.32, and this is, verse has brought me so much comfort. 
He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Worried about the rent or the mortgage or two men out and three men on. Well, God is there. You need not worry. He's promised to graciously give us all things. So, friends, what will you give up to follow Christ? As one good old hymn writer said, put it, he demands our life, our soul, our all. And precious is the promise of the Lord to those who are willing to lay down their lives for everything. And I close with Matthew 19, 28 and 29. Where Jesus said, can, I ask you this, can you outgive God? Well, here's what Jesus said. I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, at the end of time, on judgment day, at that last day, that day of all days, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, when his kingdom comes in its fullness, everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal let us go here, awake, go from here, and live risky lives. Not for our own glory, but for His. Let's pray together. God, what a shocking, shocking story. But it's far less shocking than the notion, the truth, the story that God gave up His only Son and nailed Him to a tree. Father, I pray that that would shock us and cause us to fear you and love you and drive us to you, knowing that in this life there will be pressure every day, every moment, pressure to conform to the ways of this world, pressure to deny Christ, pressure from Satan, pressure from the flesh, pressure from the world. God, I pray you give us a faith that cannot be shaken that doesn't give in to pressure, that will not compromise when the chips are down and all has been said and the pressure is on, that we would trust you far more than our eyes can see. We'd be like Abraham. We'd be like Job, these great saints of old, that we would trust you and know you will never leave us or forsake us, that we'd rest in your promises. And this would liberate us from believing that this life is all there is, or at least as living as if this life is all there is. Give us grace to trust you and to live in light of that trust all the days of our lives. For your glory, through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.